Good morning. How's everybody doing? Great. Hey, my name's Ty. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you. I love coming up here just a little early when the lights come on and the music's playing and just look at your faces. I really can't see them. It's really bright, but I bet you look good. Hey, I got one announcement and then one thing to tell you. It'd be kind of fun. Uh, Number one, we have a covenant partner class today between two and five o'clock right in here. I'll be leading that and teaching that. So two to five, but I promise you, well, I don't want to make a promise. Uh, I'm going to try to get you out of here early. So many of you have signed up for that. But if you have not signed up for our covenant partner class, go ahead and just show up today at two o'clock right in here, okay? Uh, you don't need to sign up at this point. It is our membership. It gets you uh, all the insides and outsides of Grace Point Church, what we believe, uh, our doctrines, theology, all that good stuff. I get, you get a, uh, an opportunity to ask questions. And so make sure you're here today for that. And then the second thing is more of a statement than anything. Uh, this past week, um, in one of our women's uh, community group, uh, Pastor Tim went over there and, and baptized four ladies. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Now, some of you are wondering, like, why is Pastor Tim over at the ladies' community group? you have to ask him. Uh, so uh, if you've been around with us for a while, we're going through the book of Romans. We're in the second chapter already. And if not, um, it kind of feels like it's just been a lot of bad news, right? I and mean, like, it's just, it's just really showing us how bad we truly are. Let me give you a little summary. Uh, if you've missed any of it, or just to kind of give you a little replay, we found out so far that God is holy and perfect, and we are not. Uh, we, we found out that God has revealed himself in creation and truth, and yet humans, us, we have ignored the truth, we have suppressed the truth, we have pushed down the truth and traded it for a lie. Uh, we see that God is equally offended by our irreligion, our immorality sometimes, often and always. And we also find out that he's also uh, equally offended by our, reality, our uh, morality and our religion at times as well. We see, uh, we've seen that God is the judge. He will judge each and every human being you and I, both of us included, and then also that we are not judges and that we don't make very good judges at all. Uh, and I know when we hear some of these things, you've been hearing them on repeat over the past few weeks, so we can kind of feel like, well, hey, this, is, this just doesn't really feel like it's fair. And then we'll kind, of play, uh, we'll kind of play the part sometimes of like, what about? We'll look at God and we're like, what about this person? What about that person? What about someone who has no ac- access to the Bible? Are they going to be judged by God as well? Or what about someone who grew up in a non-Christian home? Anyone here grew up in a non-Christian home? I, I, I grew up in a non-Christian home. Like, what, what about us? Or what about someone who lives on a remote island? Or what about someone who has no access to Bible or church? Or there's just no Christians around as well? And I'm sure in your mind you've got a lot of whatabouts as well. But today our text is going to cover the whatabouts. The whatabouts. So what Paul's going to do uh, this week and next week, please be here next week. I promise you it'll be worth it. Uh, but he's going through every angle to cut us off because why? We as human beings, we want loopholes. We want to find a loophole in God's judgment. We want to find a loophole in his holiness. And so we're like, hey, there's got to be some way that I can be right. There's got to be some way that I can be uh, right before God. And the word we're looking for there when we think we can be right is the word righteousness. And yet a- apart from God himself, we have no Righteousness. That's why Paul starts off in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, which I would say is the key verse of, definitely of the book, but I would say the key verse of the Bible. It says this, Romans 1, 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness, being right with God and God's rightness, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by what? So our righteousness is not in self, but it's in God and God alone. So how is all this going to play out? Go to Romans chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and go there now. Romans chapter 2. So we're going to spend our time this morning. If you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always say you're going to need a Bible. We lead, teach and preach from the Bible. We have those in English and Spanish up front and back. Uh, and if you want to do a version on your phone, it's called Version. You can download that and all the... Grace Point stuff is on there, the Bible and fun stuff. Um, a little bit of a reminder as we get ready to get started in Romans chapter 2, verse 12. 12 is that Paul is writing to a church in Rome. And the church in Rome has um, Jewish people, people who would know the, the Old Testament, specifically the first five uh, books of the Bible known as the law. They would know that very, very well, but they have found the Messiah through the law and through the Old Testament. And so they are Jewish people who converted to Christianity, Okay. There's also people in there called Gentiles, or also referred to as Greek. Uh, Gentile and Greek within the book of Romans would refer to someone who is not Jewish. And so uh, these Gentile Greek people uh, have also met Jesus. They've walked away from their paganism. They've walked away from their irreligion. And so now they're following Jesus. So you have Jewish people and Gentile people, which would kind of cover the whole gamut back then. And so um, Paul, what he's doing, he's making a great argument saying that neither the Greek or the Gentile without the law or the Jew who has the law are with any excuse when it comes to the judgment of God. Uh, it, I don't know if this would be helpful or not. It may not be, maybe a too simplification. But if you're a person who uh, you consider yourself a Christian or you grew up as a Christian, you might want to listen to the Paul talking to, about, uh, talking to the Jews about the law. Or maybe you would say, today, I'm not a Christian you say, hey, I didn't grow up with a Christian as my background. You might want to listen a little bit to him uh, address the Greeks and the Gentile. That may be helpful. It may not. But anyway, we'll be in chapter 2, verse 12. Are you there? You guys ready to do some work? All right. It says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Who's he talking to there? The Greek, the Gentile, okay? And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Who would that, who's he talking about? The Jewish people there as well. Uh, previously, Paul's been saying that no one has an excuse. Why? Because God has revealed himself in creation very clearly. Uh, but some will may ha- try to have some kind of loophole here and say, well, we don't have the law of God, which would be known as his special revelation. So we must be off the hook. And Paul's like, you're not. Others, the Jewish people may have said, well, we have the law and we know the law, so we must be exempt from God's judgment. We, like, we good, like kind of deal. And Paul's like, not so fast. Paul is basically putting the the Jew and the Gentile in the same boat together. Whether you have the law or you do not have the law. One may have outright ignored God and one may have uh, ignored God by their own religious activity. He said, you're you're both accountable. Can Can you hear that? You're both accountable. Verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, what does Paul mean here? It's like Paul uh, is looking at the Jewish people. They have the law, and they're like, hey, we got the law. And Paul is like, big whoop, you have the law, but are you obeying the law? And I'm sure they're like, yeah, yeah, we're obeying the law. And Paul's probably thinking, are you obeying all 613 laws of the law? Because that is the demand. The demand is that you be perfect at the law. All 613. Have you ever read the Old Testament? There's some crazy laws in there, am I right? There is. 
Now, if they would have been, if they would have obeyed all 613 laws, would they have been righteous? Well, I don't know about that. Paul, in another writing in Galatians, he wrote this in Galatians 2.16. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified, meaning not in right relationship with God, not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by what? By what? By faith in Christ and not by works of law, because by works of law, no one will be justified. So you will not be. So Paul here in Romans chapter two is not writing in this sentence or in this area about salvation. He's writing about judgment. He's saying no matter how religious you are, no matter how obedient you are, it's not enough. Perfection is God's standard. Why? Because God is perfect and God is holy and he demands perfection. Now, I think there's a point to be made there as well, though, because he's saying it's not just hearers of the law, because the Jewish people at that time, uh, they were hearing God's law all the time. They would go to temple, and the law would be read. They would be at homes, and the law would be read. They're all the time hearing God's law. He says it's very important to also be doers of God's law or God's word as well. Uh, James's half-little brother, he said it like this in James 1.22. He says, but be what? Doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourself. For if anyone is hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a person who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Obedience matters. That's what James is saying here. I think Paul's alluding it to it a little bit right here. Obedience matters. Obedience won't save you. Everyone got that, right? but it matters. Have you ever wondered, Christian, why obedience matters? Because if not careful, Christians, this is what we'll do sometimes. We'll say, you know what? I am a grace person, and we go to Grace Point Church, and I'm all about grace, and I'm saved by God's grace, so I don't need to be obedient at all. Why? Because Jesus did it all for me, and sometimes we think that, don't we? But obedience matters. Why does obedience, it doesn't save us, but why does it matter to the Christian? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I think obedience confirms relationship. It, it, it just, it, it can say, I have a relationship with God. Why? Because I'm obeying. It can say that. Obedience can confirm that I have a relationship with God. When we obey God, we're saying, I trust you. When we obey God, we're saying, I depend upon you. I submit to you. You are the authority over me, meaning you can tell me what to do and what not to do. We believe in his word that it brings us life, and that our lives are shaped by, and Jesus is the top priority, not just an option in my life. Why? That shows our relationship. Didn't Jesus say something about this? If you look in John 14, 15, it says this. It says, if you love me, you will do what? It's not conditional. Jesus is not saying, well, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. No, he's saying, if you love me, that's, it's going to be proof that you love me. It's, gonna, it's, gonna, it's going to show that you love me because you want to keep my commandments. So here's the issue Paul was going after. Jews claimed to know God's law and they were good with, they thought they were good with God just by knowing God's law. Listen to me. Knowing God's word is not enough. Can, can you hear that this morning? It's not enough. See, some of you, some of you, when you come in here, listen to me, it's just like this. When you come in here and you hear the Bible, you think the Bible is a lot like algebra. You remember algebra back in school? 
And you thought, here's, here's exactly what you thought about algebra, unless you're really, like, unless you were going to be an algebra person, unless algebra was life. You were like, I'm never going to use this outside of here. And so for most of you, when it came to algebra, you're like, I'm going to learn it. That way, when I get the quiz, when I get the test, I can get a good grade on it and move on with life because I'm never going to use algebra outside of here. And if we're not careful, when we come in here, you're like, give me some of God's word. That way, if God ever gives me a pop quiz or a test, I'll be able to regurgitate some of these things back to him. Or if someone ever challenges me, I'll know some of these verses. I can say some of these things, and then I'm good to go. But really, when you see God's word, you really don't see it any use in your life or outside of here. And so you're hearers of God's word, but to do to really make that apply in my life and really let it to orient my life, nah, that's like algebra. Some of us view it that way. Let, let, me, let me help you with the story. There's a scene in the Gospels where the religious elite were coming to Jesus, and they're always trying to trip him up. They come to Jesus, and like, Jesus, you know the law of the Old Testament. There's like 613 of them. Which one is the best? Which one is the most important? Which one, like, should we really, like, you know, if you were to give us the cliff notes and summarize, what would you say? And so in Matthew 22, this is what Jesus says. And most of you, if you've been in church for like eight seconds, you know this. It says this, Matthew 22, 37. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, which is pointing back to Deuteronomy chapter six, the Shema, basically love God with everything you have. He says, and this is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Basically, Jesus is saying all the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, it's all summarized to love God and love your neighbor. Love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor. So if we believe what Jesus is saying here, then it looks like to us, this whole Christianity thing is all about relationship and not religion. Love is not a religious word. Love is a relational word. And so we hear Jesus, the, the master here, telling us that your religion, if it's not based upon love, if it's not based upon relationship, then it's just religion. You just know religion. You do not know God himself. Can you hear that for yourself this morning? If you want religion, then it has to be relational. If you want to be biblical, then you're going to have to be relational. If you want to be theologically correct, then you're going to have to be relational. If you want to be saved, you have to be relational. You just have to be. And the more you follow Jesus, look, look, look. For some of you, you are, as the Bible says, advanced in years. I see you. The heart grows one of two ways. More humble because of love or harder. Which, one, which way is your heart growing? My, my friends who are advanced in years. Because if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, he's going to make you more relational. He's going to make you more loving. This is what he, this is what he does. See, for some of us, here's the trap. Here's the trap of a religion. We're like, you know what? I want to know religion. I want to master Christianity. And I'm a very well-studied person and I can study everything. But yet what we're doing is we're hiding behind our studying and not actually relating with God or anyone else. Soren Kierkegaard, greatest name ever. Soren Kierkegaard. I've quoted this many a time. I'm going to quote it again because it's so good. He said this. Listen to this, please. He says, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. Love God, love others. 
But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. Love God, love others. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get along in the world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is a church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible, to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, priceless scholarship, what would we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of a living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. We will settle for religion. We will settle to be knowers and not lovers and doers. The point is, you may have the law, know the Bible, even be religious and religiously obey it. It's not enough. The law is good, obedience is good, but just doing the right thing or even religious thing, obedience without relationship is not going to give you a pass when it comes to God's judgment. Can you hear that for yourself? I know right now you're sitting there thinking, man, I hope they're listening. The person sitting beside you, man, I wish they were here to hear this. No, you listen to that. This is for you. You need to hear that. Okay. Now, what, what, what about the rest? Well, what, what, what about those who, without the Bible, what, what about those uh, you know, that see God's creation, but yet they suppress it? They don't have the law. What about those without churches and and preachers and all that, Paul's going to address that. Look at verse 14. He says, for when Gentiles, so he's talking to Gentiles now, but, but watch what he's getting ready to do because Paul is masterful. He's going to use the Gentiles to spike the ball in, in the Jewish people's face. Man, I love, I love Paul's arguing style. It's good. He said, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. He's like, Gentiles are not Jewish, and they don't have the law. They don't have the Old Testament. They don't have the Torah. They don't, they don't have any of that. But Paul's saying they even do what the law requires without having the law, which I think is a nudge to some of the Jewish people like, hey, you guys have the law, and you're not even doing it right. He's saying instinctually, not universally, but instinctually, most people kind of get it. They kind of do what the law requires. Or as we say in the country, a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. Or as my sweet wife will be at the second gathering, I'll say it now. My sweet wife says, she said to me one time, she tried so hard. She's like, you know what they say? Squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. I'm like, babe, that's how they live. (laughs) The saying is a blind one. But you're cute and it's fine. But anyway, don't tell her I said that. She'll be in the second one. But I mean, you and I get this. Many people who are not Christians or who are of another religion or who are no religion whatsoever or who would even be smart enough to say that, hey, I'm an atheist or something like that, uh, they do moral things. They do right things. I mean, this is an observable, verifiable fact with anthropologists have discovered everywhere. Not all human beings are thieves and murderers and horrible humans. Some honor their parents and recognize the sanctity of your life and are loyal to their spouses and practice honesty and speak the truth and are quite content with what they have, which is all what I just listed there is part of the, the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. How do they do it? Why do they do it? Verse 15. Put your thinking cap on. We're getting ready to think. 
Verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, that they are Gentiles, okay, non-Jewish. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul uses this phrase, it's a bit tricky, that we need to kind of hone in on. He says, written on their hearts. What does written on their hearts mean? Well, in the Bible, when Jesus uh, enacts the new covenant, his life, death, burial, resurrection, we live under the new covenant. And we see prophecy from the Old Testament and uh, speaking of it in the New Testament that God is going to give us a new heart. And so if you're a Christian in here, because of all that Jesus has done, because the Holy Spirit resides in you, you have what's called the new heart. Now, the new heart doesn't mean you instantly know the Bible. It doesn't mean like, you know, you can you know, uh, call out, you know, Ezekiel 35, 23, go. Doesn't mean you can do that right now. But the new heart means I have a desire for God. I have a desire for the things of God. I have a desire for God's will. I have a desire for God's will. So is Paul right here saying it's written on their hearts, talking about Gentiles, and I think he means the unbelieving world. Is he, is he becoming a universalist and saying, no, 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 everybody has that new heart? And the answer is no. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about judgment. He's dismantling any excuse or loophole that people are trying to find against being judged by God. Paul's not referring to the gift of, a, of the new heart caused by regeneration or being born again. Paul's referring to written on all human hearts due to his creation. Creation. All of creation have some knowledge of God's law, his ways. When we become a new creation, he gives us love and ability and desires to hear God's word and to obey God's word. Kind of like this. Every human being is created in the image of God. You would agree with that, right? Every human being created in the image of God, they have a moral compass. Now, because of sin, because of the fall, the moral compass is busted, it's misaligned, it is broken. But, but normally and naturally, outside of some, maybe some disorders or some mental issues or whatnot, humans instinctually know killing other humans is wrong. Humans insti instinctually know that stealing is wrong. Humans instinctually know that we do not need another Fast and the Furious movie. Humans instinctually, for the love of all this good in the world, make it stop. I saw there's a new Transformer movie. I'm like, well, the end is nigh. What he's meaning right here, written on the heart, he's not saying that every human being knows all one, uh, 613 laws uh, and commandments of the first five books of the Bible, yet all human beings have sufficient knowledge of what is right and wrong on their heart so their conscience can, can accuse them of like, do this, don't do that. And at judgment day, they will not be held accountable for what they have no knowledge of and no access to, but they will be accountable to their conscience, that hardwired moral compass being created in the image of God. Paul saying, all will be judged. Now, I mentioned this internal mechanism that each and every person has that is supposed to guide them. Look back at verse 15. I'll show you again. They show that the work of the law is written on their heart while their conscience conscience, that's it right there, also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. Every human being has a conscience. Some of you are like, I disagree with that. I've, I've been driving in Las Vegas for years now. <laughs> Dude, real quick, I broke up a fight in the Home, Home Depot parking lot on Friday over people driving in this piece. It's nuts out there. Anyway, it's a true story. So what is a conscience? 
What is it? And the answer is, I don't know. Let's pray. I, just, I, I don't know. I, I think it has something to do with the, the, the heart and the, and the, and the mind, because right in the text, he says, uh, he talks about written on their hearts, and he says uh, conflicting thoughts. So I think it's connected to the heart and mind. But here's what I know about the conscience that, that each and every one of us have, have. It's a gift from God, and that everyone needs one. And it cannot save you. It cannot save you. Alone, it cannot get you into heaven. It can get you out of a lot of trouble. Am I right? You ever been in one of those situations to where you had like a feeling? Like, I probably shouldn't do this. I probably shouldn't go there. Probably shouldn't go hang out with them. I should probably not engage in this. You ever had one of those situations before? And you listen to it, and then later on you get the, you get the report back, like it was just all bad, and you're like, whoo, I dodged a bullet there. You ever done that? That's your conscience. Guiding you and leading. This is what God has, God has given you. The question is, should we always follow our conscience? And the answer is, maybe, sometimes, yeah, absolutely not. That's the answer. So your conscience is something that always needs to be calibrated. It's like a, it's like a compass. And the, I don't know how a compass works. Magnets in the North Pole, South Pole, Sandwich Workshop. I don't know. It does something. And it, it gets kind of knocked off every once in a while. It needs to be recalibrated constantly. And I also know from the Bible that we can totally mess it up. We can totally uh, make our, our conscience, that internal compass, get out of whack. In Romans chapter 14, and I, I'm not going to preach from there today. We'll go there because we're going to get there eventually. Uh, it talks about um, your conscience sometimes can be strengthened and sometimes can be weakened. And there's a whole debate going on in Romans chapter 14 where some Christians within the church are not okay with eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And some Christians, they were like, barbecue up, let's do this thing. Like, like they, they don't care. Barbecue sauce, let's do this. Uh, they could care less. And so like uh, one is considered strong and the other is considered weak. Uh, and the whole point of it is, is like what Paul, inspired by God, is telling them is like, don't cause your brother or sister with a weaker conscience to, to stumble. But even in the words there, it kind of acts like that you can strengthen your conscience. But when it comes to a situation that your brother and sister is going to struggle on, you don't want to weaken theirs as well. And so here's the reality. You have plenty of freedoms in Christ. There's a lot of gray areas in the world around us, a lot of gray areas in life that the Bible doesn't speak clearly on. You may have freedom to do something or not do something, but if it causes your brother or sister to stumble, then you have the freedom and the luxury in Christ to lay it down. Can you hear that? Some of us just, like, we may have freedoms. We don't need to flaunt our freedoms. We might need to just lay them down. But see, when it comes to our conscience, like, we can, we can, God's nudging and using it, and we can refuse it, and that messes us up. Let, let, me, let me give a for instance. You're going to love this one. For instance, um, let's assume that you think drinking alcohol is a sin. Not after Dale talking about his generous glass of wine earlier. Um, I'm with you, Dale. Um, but some of you may think that it's a sin. And so you go to the Bible and you, you just read the Bible, read the Bible, original language and all this. And you come to this, you come to this thought of like, wait a minute, uh, the Bible doesn't say drinking alcohol is a sin. Uh, it gives lots of warnings, lots of warnings. And drunkenness is always a sin. But because of your past and because of uh, maybe some wounds and some weaknesses or things that have happened and all that kind of stuff, you have decided, your, your conscience in you has said, hey, it's, it's not wise for us to drink. It's not wise for us to drink. And so you abstain. Thanks be to God. 
Now, it would be unwise and not helpful for you if you go to everyone else whose conscience allows them to drink, not drunkenness, but allows them to drink, and go to them and judge them and tell them how bad they are and how wrong they are. It would not be wise nor helpful. Now, if you're the one whose conscience allows you to drink, it would not be good for your brother or sister to crack open a, you know, a natty light or something in front of them. That wouldn't be wise anyway, but wouldn't be good and wise for them because that's going to cause your brother or sister to, to not feel well, to stumble, to, 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 to grieve them. Does that make sense? So, so there's, there's, there's weakness and there's strength your conscience may allow. To go against your conscience would be to sin, and you shouldn't go against other people's conscience as well. Now, what about our conscience being out of calibration? What do we do to calibrate it? Well, we need a constant dose of God's word to keep our conscience in line, to make sure it's right. Why do we need God's word a lot? Listen, don't, don't, don't forget this, because it helps me every time I think about it. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit resides in you, you have your conscience, and he works through your conscience sometimes to speak to you. Um, and, and when you take in God's word... You're, you're, you're getting more familiar with God and his word and his way and his wills. And, and the more you do that, you're, you're giving your conscience a vocabulary to understand and hear the Holy Spirit speaking and leading you. And so you need more and more of God's word. That way, when you are so captive by God's word, you can trust your conscience to lead you because the Holy Spirit's going to be leading your conscience. Make sense? Well, let me give you an illustration in church history. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, Martin Luther... The dude who would like pick the fight with uh, the Pope and, and the whole Catholic system. Remember that guy? Ever heard of that guy? Anyway, uh, and so he read the book of Romans, read the book of Galatians. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by faith. And this thing has gone off the rails. And so he goes and he, the 95 Thesis, and, and he really, really kind of. Um, he really kind of made the powers to be at the time upset. And so they haul him in. And so you got uh, Emperor Charles V there, and they're uh, interrogating him. Uh, and he's got like cardinals and bishops and princes and governors. They're all just pelting Luther with these questions. And they're trying to get him to recant of his, uh, of his uh, by faith alone. And recant means they're trying to get him to turn from it. They're trying to get him to say, nah, I don't believe that. And this is what he said. He says, I, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evidence or reason, I cannot recant for my conscience is held captive by the word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. When, when your conscience is held captive by the word of God, it will lead you correctly and into conformity to Jesus. This is what Paul's talking about. Just as God has revela uh, revealed himself externally through what we call general revelation or creation, He's also revealed himself externally or internally through our conscience. Your conscience can't save you, but it can guide you. It can help you. But here's another thing about your conscience. You can also sear it, the Bible says. You know what sear means, right? Burn it. Like if you like your steak well done, you just don't like steak, seared. First Timothy 4 says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times... Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teaching of demons, which is always bad. Through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You can destroy your conscience. 
And I'm going to tell you exactly how you can destroy your conscience. And for some of you, as I get ready to tell you these three things, perhaps you need to be a little bit reflective and like, oh my gosh, I've probably uh, I've messed the calibration up on my conscience. My conscience is going to be guided more by the world than by the word. I'm going to give you three ways you can totally destroy your conscience. Are you ready? Number one, it's real simple. Avoid God's word. If you avoid God's word, you will destroy your conscience. It will not lead you in the right way. It will trick you and deceive you, and it will lead you in the wrong way. Meaning, when you hear God's word, you just hear it and just move on. You don't meditate upon it. Maybe in the morning you have a routine to where you get your daily Bible verse on your phone, you read it, and like, we good, and you roll on. Like, you don't really think about it, you don't chew on it, you don't meditate on it, you don't anything. And, 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 or maybe for some of us, we're a lot like Jonah. You know the story of Jonah, right? God's word came to Jonah, and what did Jonah do? Deuces, I'm out of here, and gets a boat. Why? Here's the reason. Uh, he didn't want anything to do with God, God's word. He didn't like what God was telling him and telling him to do. And so he removed himself from God's word and vicariously through God's people. When you start to remove yourself from God's people, it's one step away. You're wanting to remove yourself from God's word. Listen, 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 listen. Right now, I guarantee there are some of you lacing up your running shoes. Because you're like, hey, I got something in life. I got something that I want to do, something going on that I know God's word forbids. I know God's word is against. I know God doesn't want it. It's not a part of his will. I, I know that. And so I'm lacing up my running shoes because I'm getting ready to run away from church. Why? Because I got in order to get away from God's word, I got to get away from his church, get away from his people, and then I can ultimately get away from God's word, and then I can go absolutely wreck my life. And your conscience has allowed you, your conscience is pointing you to go do that. You're like, hey, it'll be fine. It'll work out. I know everything. God will forgive me later on, and I want to do it. Listen, don't do it. You are searing your conscience. You're in a very dangerous place. Your compass is broken. You want to destroy your conscience? Number one, avoid God's word. Number two, get comfortable with the sin in our lives. If you can just get comfortable with the sin in your life, you'll really begin to destroy your conscience. The more we repeat our sin, the less sensitive our conscience becomes and becomes calloused. Uh, you, ever, you ever work outside, like work with your hands? I grew up on a farm uh, all the way up until moving out here. I worked on farms, which is what we did. And so you get these things. Maybe some of you are CrossFitters and you do the pull-up thing, the kipping pull-ups. Did you see my motion right there? Kipping pull-ups. Um, and you, you literally rip the pad off of your hand and it'll grow back. And you do it over and over and over to where it grows back super hard and you can't feel a thing right there. The more we sin, it's the same way. It's like our soul, our conscience can no longer feel the, the effects of sin. Sin no longer bothers us. And we start to rename sin. We start to call sin mistakes. All right, you know, it's just a little whoopsie I did. Not, not, a, not, a, not a big deal. Or, or we'll say things, we'll start to justify our sin. We're like, you know what? Your generation may see sin as that, but my generation doesn't see that as sin as well. You'll start justifying it too by saying, you know what, Ty? Everyone's doing it. We'll just say, hey, it's, it's not gossip. Here's what we do as Christians. It's not gossip. I'm just concerned about them. It's not porn. There's dragons in the shows. <laughs> I'm buzzed. I'm not drunk. I mean, I, I mean that as a theory, not right now. <laughs> or we'll, we'll, we'll just start repackaging things. My body, my choice. It's my reproductive rights, reproductive health care. It's just getting comfortable with sin. 
Is there any sin in your life that you know you're, you're re- repeating and not repenting of? Be very careful. Let me give you the third one. Stop confessing and repenting of sin. Gets to a point in our life to where we're just running, 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 and our conscience is, is offline, and we stop confessing sin. We stop going to God like, God, oh, forget, like, I've done this, and start to explain. You know how confessing sin works. We explain to God what we've done. He knows, but it's good for us. We're in agreement with, like, yeah, God, this is against you. This is against, against your words. It's against your people. As a matter of fact, we probably not just stop confessing to God. We probably just stop talking to God altogether. And when we stop confessing our sin, we stop repenting of sin. And repenting is not just saying, God, I'm sorry, I'm moving on. Like, it's not, that's not that at all. Repenting is actually hating your sin. Not hating yourself. Self-loathing is, does not belong in the gospel. But you hate your sin. Like, God, ah, I did it again. I'm so sorry. I just, I hate that I do that. I don't know why I think that. It's, I hate that. It's hating your sin. Hating it. And then it's doing whatever it takes to move away from it. Jesus said this to the Pharisees in Matthew 3. He says, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It means that like, you actually do something, powered by the Holy Spirit, like you repent of sin and do something about it. See, here's the reality. When we start to destroy the calibration of our conscience, we want to destroy everyone else's around us. That way it aligns with ours. Now I know we can sit here and lament and grieve of how the world is a mess and how everyone is so bad and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. But I think it'd be wise for us to stop and ask, what are we doing wrong? Where, where, where are we searing, destroying, weakening our conscience? What are we doing? What, what are we okay with now that we never were okay with a long time ago that the Bible absolutely forbids and talks and prohibits? It's our conscience. Now, Paul, I'm not going to not going to pull any punches here. Actually, he's about to lay us on the mat with verse 16. It says, On that day, meaning judgment, when according to my gospel, talking about the good news of Jesus, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You got any secrets? Let's take the next 10 minutes. I'm going to get you all to pop up. Everybody tell me your deepest, darkest secret. We'll start over. You may hide your secret well through this life. God's going to throw a big old floodlight on it when you stand before him. And it says, judged by Jesus Christ, meaning he's the standard and he's perfect. And he's also the judge, which means he's God and judge. And so we will be judged by Jesus and our secrets will all come out. What hope is there for us? The good news is that Jesus is going to be there. And our hope is because of all that he's done on our behalf, because of his perfect righteousness, He's going to step down from the judge's position and come stand beside us, put his arm around us and say, this one's mine. I know. Can you believe it? But this one's mine. That's all we got. That's all we have is that Jesus would come down to us. Why? Because God demands perfection. And for what God demands, he provides. And that's Jesus. And that's why we have Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's an equal opportunity gospel. If you consider yourself religious and moral and you're just hiding behind your religion, which I'm going to talk about next week, please don't miss, the gospel is for you. 
You may, you may be thinking, you know, I'm a moralist and I'm just trying to do right, but I've been doing wrong. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to work harder and do a whole lot of right. And I'll stop doing this and I'll stop doing that. And then God will, God will accept me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is confess and repent. The gospel is trust Jesus. The gospel is the cross has already outed you as a sinner. He's not surprised by your sin. That's why you confess and repent and turn away from. For some of you say, well, I'm irreligious. I don't, you know, like, good thing I'm not in that boat. Well, have you confessed of your sin as well? Have you repented as well? Have you, are you trusting Jesus? Are you pursuing holiness and obedience as well? The gospel's for everyone who would believe. It is the power of God for salvation. I want to end with this. Yeah, I got a little time. I want to end with this. Uh, for some of us, probably all of us, to a certain degree, our conscience is out of line. And so I want to take the last bit of our time together, and I want to help us to align our conscience. And so maybe you want to close your Bibles. You can go ahead and close them now. Get comfortable. Not too comfortable. Comfortable. So you'd be like, okay, cool. Get comfortable. Uh, you may want to take a posture of just sitting where you're at. Here in a bit, you may want to kneel, do whatever's comfortable for you. Don't run around. How do we recalibrate our conscience? It's the opposite of everything else. We recalibrate it um, by God's word. We've got to get uncomfortable with our sin. And we've got to confess and repent. We'll start with God's word. The first one, God's word. I'm going to put Psalm 139 up there. Where this is the word we're going to kind of meditate on together. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. So right where we sit, if you guys don't mind, kind of flicker through those two over and over. If you don't mind, as you, let's, let's, let's pause. Let's focus on God's word. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. Just in a spirit of prayer. Maybe you want to close your eyes. Perhaps you would ask, God, would you search me and know my heart? Try me and know my thoughts. God, show me. Point out any grievous way in me. Let's take some silence and ask God in your heart and mind, God, show me my sin. Show me the grievous way. Maybe it's my, my pride. Maybe it's something internal going on. My lack of forgiveness, my bitterness. Maybe it's a habit that I've just, a very unhealthy habit I've picked up. Maybe it's something external. I'm not right with somebody. I've not been worshiping you. I've been worshiping in everything else. It's idolatry. Just take some silence and ask God, God, show me. Show me my sin. Holy Spirit, you are good. You are the convictor of sin. We ask that you would just shine a big floodlight on the area that is grievous to you. We know you're kind. We know you're merciful. We know you'll be gentle. Well, here's what I know about all of us. We're all human. I understand the human condition. So I'm sure with each and every one, there's at least one sin that God is pointing out. 
This is the part of the calibrating our conscience is to be uncomfortable with our sin. Like, like God, I even need your help to make me uncomfortable. I don't want to be comfortable with this anymore. I don't want to be okay with this anymore. This sin, whatever that is, it's got these two paths with it. One is your wrath. And that path led to the cross. And one is your love. And that path led to the cross. That's where Jesus deals with sin. He dealt with that sin. Be reminded of that. But it is partly the reason why Jesus took the wrath on your behalf. It's because of his great love for you. So don't be comfortable with sin. Here's the last part, the third part, to recalibrate. To confess and repent. Just in your mind, in your heart, confess. Like, God, you, you pointed it to me. You already know, but I'm, I'm saying this back to you in my mind of like, here's where I'm at. Here's what I've been doing. Here's what's been going on. No excuses. Here's what's going on. God, forgive me. I confess, God, forgive me. And, and, and repent. Repent is not remorse. Remorse turns us inward back to ourself. Re- repentance turns us upward. It turns us upward to, to, to seek God's empowerment to be released. It, to, it sends us upward uh, to receive his grace, to his mercy. So just take a, take a few moments there. Just in your mind, and your heart, confess and repent. I have a, a simple prayer on the screen for us. I'd love for us to read together. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank God for his mercy 